Hello and welcome to another episode of No Such Thing as a Fish, a weekly podcast coming to you from the QI offices in Covent Garden. My name is Dan Schreiber. I am sitting here with Andy Murray, Anna Chazinski, and James Harkin. And once again, we have gathered around the microphones with our four favorite facts from the last seven days. And in no particular order, here we go. Starting with you, Andrew Hunter Murray. My fact is that farmers in Botswana have started painting eyes on their cows' bottoms to stop <laughs> lions from attacking them. <laughs> so good. <laughs> we don't need anything more. Yeah, right. Next, Time for fact that? number two. Um, um, does it work, Andy? Well, this is the really interesting thing. This is in the trial stages at the moment. So it's by a British conservation biologist called Neil Jordan. Uh, he works in Australia and Botswana. So we're in Botswana here. And... Um, he he wanted to trick uh, lions into thinking that they've been spotted when they're sneaking up on a cow. Or uh-huh. when sne- so um, he, he's been working in the Okavango Delta, and he did a trial last year where 23 cows had eyes painted on their bottoms. They all survived, and in the rest of the herd there were 39 cows which were not painted, and of those cows, three were eaten by okay. lines. So it's a very small sample size. So he is literally I wrote to him and said Can and you is, um, paint some eyes on my bottom please? <laughs> <laughs> um, and he this coming Monday uh, in a few days is going to Botswana again. He's going to try a larger sample group and the idea is that it's a very cheap way of stopping a herd being eaten. So the cost of painting a herd for a year is, is much less than the value of one cow being eaten. So, it's not cheap uh, if the cows value their self-respect, though, is it? No. It's probably a very expensive a, social sacrifice. They look like elephants, actually, because of their tails sticking out <laughs> between ah. the eyes. I'm going to put up a photo on my Twitter feed, Andrew Hunter M, and I'll, uh, you can see what they look like. They should teach them to reverse as well. Have they taught them to walk backwards <laughs> to make it really realistic? <laughs> you know they did the same thing to people for the same reason. In, really? yeah. So in 1989, uh, I found this in an old edition of the New York Times. In 1989, thousands of face masks were issued by the Forestry Reserve in India to a bunch of people who were living near the Ganges where tigers kept killing people and the face masks were to wear on the back of their heads. And they found that within something like a year and a half, nobody wearing the face mask on the back of their head, so they had a face on the back of their head, got attacked. And Wait, uh, so the way to avoid tiger attack is to look at it? In the face? Yeah, they won't jump at you. You're if you're... Ki- no, of course they will. It's, it's like, tigers would obviously rather sneak up on you from behind. I think they're wow. not attacking you because you've got two faces. <laughs> it's like if you go to a supermarket and you don't buy the kind of... The, the straight bananas. Yeah, the bananas that look weird. You don't yeah. buy them. You only buy the ones that look nice. Yeah. There is a company which has started selling ugly fruit and vegetables, yeah. isn't there? Because yeah. they're cheaper. Uh-huh. And they sell really misshapen, disgusting-looking tomatoes. But they're completely the same nutritionally. Yeah. They so do it in yeah. France, I think. Yeah. yeah. And they just had a new rule in France to say that uh, supermarkets have to give any food which is about to go past sell-by dates to homeless people. <gasps> That's so good. Yeah. A yeah. lot of them did it anyway, but the laws come in now to say they have to. can't believe we don't all do that. It seems so obvious. <laughs> um, speaking of cows' bums, very quickly, <laughs> have you guys heard of, I hadn't heard of this, so I apologise if this is very well known, but have you heard of cow blowing? <laughs> the idea is that they want to induce more milk from the cow. So what they do is they lift up the tail and they blow into its butt. No. Yes. Yeah, Come and on. or vagina. So it's one of the two. <laughs> it's always a common thing, isn't there, where people say, 
milking a cow, who was the first person to ever think of that? Like, that must be one sick individual. But then I would say it's an even sicker individual <laughs> who first blows into a cow's vagina. <laughs> and then think, wow, they gave me even more milk. I agree. I know. I don't, I, but, like, weirdly, it is done. And Gandhi D- supposedly didn't drink milk because he hated this process. So yeah. he was like, if you're going to blow cows, I'm not going to get involved. <laughs> That's one of his famous quotes. <laughs> Actually, it's attributed to him. <laughs> but I think it might have been Churchill. <laughs> um, there, is, there is an actual quote, just for the sake of God. saying it. Since I had come to know that the cow and the buffalo were subjected to the process of fuka, it's called P-H-O-O-K-A. Of course it is. This is all made up. I had conceived a strong disgust for milk. So it's called, yeah, it's called cow blowing. And wait, do you, do you just have to get in there? No, they sometimes do it with a tube. And, or they sometimes, <laughs> sometimes with a tube. I should have oh, a bowl. No, you should watch YouTube videos. They're amazing. It's Sorry, quite Gary, we've, um, we've forgotten the tube today again. So, <laughs> Oh, no, Gary, that's the wrong end of the tube. Oh, Gary. <laughs> no, Gary, you're meant to blow. <laughs> It's also called insufflation. Ah. And yeah, it's quite common in African countries, um, in Kenya and Tanzania. I think they do it quite a bit. But you should watch videos. It looks hilarious. They just lift up the tail and thrust their noses right in there, don't they? Because it's been around since Herodotus, who was the first person, the first... I know, I know, it's not a great start to any scientific thing. But Herodotus described this happening in horses. So he said that people would insert a tube into the mare's anus, then blow. (laughs) Not the mare. Oh, yeah! <laughs> so this fact is about bottoms. Yes. That this is not the only bottom related story in the week's news. Yeah. Okay. So I don't know whether you've seen this, but in the Times recently there was a tiny article uh, about a robot bottom which has been invented for doctors to learn how to do uh, prostate exams. Uh, I'm very indebted to Tom Whipple, who's the science editor at the Times. So he he told me a bit about this. Um it has prosthetic buttocks and an adjustable rectum. The really exciting thing is what this is designed to replace. And there is a system at the moment, which is that there is a, someone in the UK whose job is rectal teaching assistant. <laughs> he goes around the country lending out his bottom to prostate trainees. Is there only one person? There's only one person in the entire United Kingdom who goes around with his, his bottom. I've, and I've written uh, to his people, but they haven't got back to me yet. He has people. He has people, yeah. So is he furious that this robotic bum is now? (laughs) No, he's very glad. And he won't be losing his job because he is also very important. It's just that he's quite overworked at the moment because it's just one of (laughs) him. But they've they've developed a robot (laughs) assistant. (laughs) But he provides very useful feedback on what what the procedure is like from a patient's point of view. And Presumably you can't feel anything at this point. (laughs) Oh, come on. And he can't possibly have the average rectum anymore. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think this man's a bloody <laughs> hero. I really do. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. How did he fall into that job? That I is no incredible. Um, so this guy probably doesn't suffer from another condition called dormant bottom syndrome. <laughs> <laughs> what was that? This is a real syndrome. Um, it's a guy called Chris Kolber who's a sports uh, medical guy, and he reckons that the increased sedentary lifestyle of humans... Uh, means you sit down all the time and it means your gluteus maximus doesn't get enough exercise and the the muscle isn't strong enough and it means that other parts of your leg get a lot more stress so your knees might get more stress or your hips might because 
a lot of work that would be done by your gluteus is not done by that anymore. That's very interesting. Wow. Yeah. Cool. So a good way to avoid the agonizing knee joint pain I'm already getting age 30 is to stand up more, basically. Do more squats. Do more squats. And then you won't have dormant bottom syndrome. <laughs> that is amazing. <laughs> have you guys heard of skipper caterpillars? No. no. These are very cool animals. Basically, caterpillars get preyed on a lot, and uh, one of the ways the predators find them is they trace them by their poo. So it's bad as a caterpillar to be near your own poo. But skipper caterpillars, they have a trick which they can do, which is to fling their poo as if from a catapult. Um, they have a flap under their anus, and they build up blood pressure, to build up pressure and pressure and pressure, and then eventually they fling their poo. They can fling it um, 40 times their own body length. Wow. So that's the equivalent of a human being able to throw their own poo 80 metres. <laughs> wow. You that's do get arrested for that as a human, <laughs> though. <laughs> you should warn. Um, 80 metres. James, that's really Yeah, far. I know it is, but I'm thinking, like, okay, let's say a, um, a discus world record is going to be around 80 metres, I bet. Yeah. yeah. That's a discus. It's not Although a, they, they don't get to do the spin before. But you could, and you could flatten th- your poo into a discus yeah, shape. Also, you're not throwing it <laughs> oh. with your own anus, are you? <laughs> Oh, that's true, yeah. <laughs> if it was the anus discus, <laughs> I think the record will be much lower. <laughs> It'll be a great spectator sport. <laughs> yeah, the shit pot. <laughs> or the discus. <laughs> okay, it is time for fact number two, and that is James. Okay, my fact this week is that my top speed running in armour is the same as the top speed of a snowflake falling to earth. Mm. <laughs> How have you, have you tested this? Uh, no, so I read this in a study um, by Graham N. Askew et al. It's in the Proceedings of the Royal Society. And they said that a 38-year-old man can sustain a maximum speed in armour of 1.7 metres per second. And I'm not quite 38, but I'm a bit out of shape. So (laughs) I reckon that's about my maximum speed. And according to the internet, especially uh, the Telegraph of the 7th of January 2010, uh, the average snowflake has a top speed of 1.7 metres per second as well. Oh, so you worked this out? Yeah. Because ah, I was looking for the article when you mentioned this, and I couldn't find the scientific experiment where a man in armour raced a snowflake to a destination. It takes the average snowflake an hour. Uh, the journey from the cloud to the ground. Does wow. It? Yeah, it's an hour's trip. Oh, well, that's all losing. An hour's run. Amazing. This is the fastest that um, a, a snowflake can reach, I think, rather oh, than the it? average. Yeah. Right. Okay. It's the Hussein Bolt of snowflakes. Yes, you're quite right. Uh, some other things that are 1.7 meters per second, according <laughs> to the internet. Uh, it's the speed when ponies tend to change from walking to trotting. Nice. Uh, it's the kind of average speed of a 100-meter freestyle racer during the 1972 Olympics uh-huh. swimming. Uh, <laughs> and it's the speed that trapdoor ants um, trapdoor themselves away from predators because they can kind of jump away from predators. Oh, oh. But for them, that's really fast, isn't it? Because is, they're tiny. Yeah, yeah exactly. Oh. That's very cool. Um, 1.7 meters a second. I'm struggling to get a grip on how fast that is. In miles an hour, is that like a really fast walk or is it a small short yeah, run? Yeah, it is. You could probably run about twice that, just under twice that speed without any armor. Because actually armor isn't as heavy and awkward as people used to think it was. There's this kind of meme of people in massive suits of armor hardly being able to move at all. But actually yeah. that's not true to life because obviously that would be ridiculous in a battle if yeah. everyone could just yeah. kind of <laughs> move very And slightly. apparently those swords weren't as heavy as we think they were either because the other thing is that swords are these huge like yeah. incredibly heavy uh, 
uh, weapons, and actually they were never more than five. Five. I thought five was quite heavy, actually. Uh, oh, I've been working out. <laughs> <laughs> this is interesting because there was a study in 2011 um, which put knights on a treadmill or put people in suits of armor on a treadmill mm. and they got tired. They thought the one problem was that you're wearing a backplate and a breastplate and basically you can't take a huge breath in. Mm. You can only take sh- small, shallow breaths, which means that you do get quite tired quite quickly because you can't get enough oxygen to your yeah. muscles. So it's th- this new study seems to completely contradict that one. I'm not so sure. I mean, you say they got tired. Did they put them on the treadmill at high speed for eight hours? Because we need to, we need to qualify at what point they got tired on the treadmill. They Sorry, ran yeah. for 23. <laughs> uh, they, they found it used twice as much energy as doing the same thing without armor in this ah. previous experiment well actually this experiment as well they, they're saying yes definitely it takes more energy and it's harder to walk at any speed in armor um, but actually it's just not as much as you think Right. Mm. Well, okay, so here's the thing. You know they have actual jousts these days. I mean, there are genuine yeah. competitions which take place. So yeah. there's there's one woman called Nikki Willis, but she jousts as, uh, oh, it's it's uh, St. Retham, because she's from Streatham. Oh. Well, she says she's of St. Retham. <laughs> uh, so she's brilliant. And she has just <laughs> taken part uh, last month in the first ever competitive joust between a man and a woman. Oh, great. And I didn't know this about jousting. That you, do you know what you get points for? I think it's where you hit them on the body, isn't it? Exactly. It's not knocking like someone else off. It's like a dartboard. It's like a dartboard, yeah. Ah. And it, it, it's, the article I read said it was a prearranged thing, as though you have to, like in, like in pool, where you name the pocket you're going to sink in, you say, right, I'm going to hit him on the, oh. the shoulder or whatever. Okay. Um, I'm not sure whether it's that or whether it is just like a dartboard where you get most points facing them in the helmet. I thought I thought in the olden days it was like treble 20 would be your helmet. <laughs> <laughs> if you got them on that thin line where the eyes are. <laughs> oh, jousting didn't really exist in medieval times it was the melee that was the big sport that they do which oh. in the melee was lots of people galloping towards each other and a bit of a sideline at these big melee festivals would be the joust which no one really watched and no one cared about and then as this, like, these ideas of chivalry and this one knight ruling above everyone and attracting the best women and stuff came into the fore in Tudor times then the joust took uh, became the centrepiece of these tournaments I remember reading about the melee wasn't it that um, oh, I read about one where it was like the French and the English were all taking part and then the French kind of cheated or the English cheated? The English cheated but they copied the French so oh, the okay. English cheated by saying they weren't going to get involved in a melee. I think this was in the they 15th kind of century. They stood on the side and went, oh, you guys carry on yeah. and then as soon as everyone else was tired and lost all their fingers and stuff, they kind of <laughs> ran <laughs> in. Yeah. There were several nations fighting. I think that was it and the English just sort of hung around on the edge. Um, Maybe we should have done that in the Euros. Just sat out the first few rounds and then of the last up. few rounds. Yeah. <laughs> 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 Put it the wrong way round, guys. <laughs> Do you know what... Um, so this is a cool thing. The med- whole medieval thing got kickstarted in the 19th century. Did it have kickstarted back? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, no, it was in 1839. There was a thing called the Eglinton Tournament, and it was this quite eccentric lord called Lord Eglinton who just said, I'm going to revive the idea of chivalry. We've been going without it for too long. And he hosted this massive medieval tournament, but it was in Scotland, unfortunately, which meant that it was a total washout. Like, huge rains, huge storms, huge winds, Ah. and the whole thing was a disaster. And uh, the, the, the tilting yard had this huge roof, there were huge crowds, and then it started leaking... Uh, and basically the crowds did not come back on the second day. But he just had paintings done, which made it look amazing. 
And then oh, everyone really? else said, oh, well, this is great. We should do this. So, and yeah. everyone looked at those and went, oh, do you remember the great tournament of 1836 or whatever? Exactly. And, oh, yeah. cool. Yeah. You know, there are quite a lot of paintings of female um, jousters and knights in oh, armor. Yeah. Well, you were mentioning one earlier. And you, yeah. think, you think of women as not having been really involved in that. But um, there, were a few fe- there are a few female knights in history. So I can only think of Joan of Arc. There's Joan of Arc. I can but think of are... that lady in um, Game of Thrones. There was obviously her. I think Brienne she was of Brienne of Tarth. Yes. Yeah, fourteenth, fifteenth century Brienne of Tarth. Whatever. <laughs> uh, yep. Um, there was a noble woman called the Countess Jean de Pontievre. But um, there are quite a few medieval depictions of women in armor jousting and stuff. But it was thought to be improper to show them with something as phallic as a joust. And so they'd show them in jousting tournaments carrying a distaff, which is one of those um, needles that you wrap uh, wool round when you're when you're sewing. You would think that instead of painting the uh, joust they paint like a vagina or something yeah. <laughs> Just a I big... thought you were going to come up with a weapon that looks like a vagina <laughs> I but... couldn't think of any if I could have thought of one I would have said it I know there aren't other no. No. it's harder because longer and pointier things is what is traditionally used in battles uh, yeah. Yeah. bear trap <laughs> <laughs> that's pretty messed up Ben <laughs> <laughs> don't blow into that vagina <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Okay, it is time for fact number three, and that is my fact. My fact this week is that archaeologists have started throwing artifacts into skips because there is now too much history for them to store. There's just too much history. They're finding too many bits of history, and all of their back rooms are getting clogged up, and they don't know what to do with them. It costs too much to store them, so they just have to throw them away. What happens is you put it all in a landfill, and then in another thousand years, they come to this <laughs> landfill with loads of different types of history. Yeah. They'll have some Victorian stuff, some Roman stuff, and they'll think, wow, all these people live together yes. with TVs. and Time travel happened. They cracked it. This yeah. is one amazing point <laughs> where they all... Guys, we're screwing with the future. This is terrible. So, so we need to re- leave notes in landfill <laughs> saying this, this did not all come at once. Um, it's really interesting because they, they're, they're being told lots of local community archaeology groups find things. They take them to museums, but because of lots of funding cuts, the museums then say, we have no storage. And then mm-hmm. I think they have to give them back to the people who own the land it was found on. Yes. And those guys who own the land might just keep them in their house, and if they die or move, then their inheritors or the next people might think that well, this is rubbish and throw it away. Yeah. Oh. And, the, and the, museums, the museums have to charge. It's like uh, taking out a P.O. box, as it were, um, for mail to be delivered to from somewhere that's not your house. It's you pay for a box if you want something to be put in a museum, and that can range between £20 and £600. So you're effectively saying, I'd like to donate this bit of history to you guys, but then I now need to pay to have it stored as well. And people can't afford that. So just things are being thrown away. It's terrible. And it doesn't sound like people are finding, you know, full statues of Cleopatra and and (laughs) chucking them away. I think it's obviously shards of pottery that do have uh, amazing, uh, you know, inscriptions on them and so on, but they have lots of examples of it. So there'll be... There was an excellent article on Cracked. I love it when Cracked does articles written by someone with this job, but there was this article on Cracked by an archaeologist called Hadass Levine, and she's an Israeli archaeologist, and she said they throw away about 65% of what they find, and the bits of pottery, that the only bits of pottery that are useful are the bottom and the top, because it's only at the lip and the base that you can really date it and all the stuff in between ah. you just chuck it straight back unless it's got she said unless it's got some really cool thing like a, an engraving of a penis on it and then obviously you keep it because we love that <laughs> <laughs> very similar to us in that way yeah. <laughs> 
Um, but remember, Andy, you ages ago were telling me about uh, the fact that there was a new train system that was being built. And as they were digging, this was in Istanbul, I think. And as they were looking, there was just too much history. Rome. It was in so Rome. So Rome, Rome is having another underground line built at the moment. And... They just, they've had to delay it three times now because they keep finding, oh, well, it's another massive barracks full of statues <laughs> and, you know, ancient important stables and things like this. So, yeah. I think then that you... happened with Crossrail a bit as well, didn't it? They yeah. kept finding things. They kept finding plague pits when they first built the... Yeah. Yeah. I think there's a kink in, I'm going to say it's in the uh, Piccadilly line, but obviously some people listening would know, but I think there's a kink in it which goes around the plague pit. Oh, yes, really? right. That must be a classic problem of anyone building well, underground yeah. rail. And I think if we mentioned before that with HS2 there was an archaeologist shortage. And there still is. Yeah. If you're listening to this and you're wondering what to do with your life, become an archaeologist. Do or it. go around letting people put their finger up your bum. <laughs> <laughs> There's a shortage in that too. It's just a binary choice now. All the <laughs> jobs are filled. <laughs> I went onto a website called, it's a Tumblr, um, called Archaeologist Problems. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a few of those. Um, one of them is being asked if giants really exist, but their discovery is covered up by the museums. In inverted <laughs> commas. Apparently, that's something they get asked quite a lot. Uh, I thought I was being original with that question. <laughs> Archaeologist Joy's finding massive amounts of well-preserved artifacts in one small location followed by archaeologist problems, said small location is a privy and the smell is stuck on your clothing, your hair, your field gear, everything. Wow. So that's a problem they have. And also a problem they have is getting teased in Europe for sharpening your trowel and getting teased in the US for not sharpening your trowel. Archaeologists can be so cruel. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But I think this is a good tip because, Andy, you're saying that people should become archaeologists. Yeah. Maybe, if you're going to become one, then make sure you always sharpen your trowel in the US, but don't do it in Europe. You better have got that the right way around, James, because <laughs> yeah. you're responsible for the rampant bullying of all archaeologists henceforth. Yeah. If you're going to become an archaeologist, maybe become a US one, so that if you get into a fight with a non-US archaeologist, you'll have a sharp trowel. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So... Just on things being thrown away by mm-hmm. mistake. In 2014, Bournemouth Council, they launched this new scheme where it was a food waste collection service and you basically had your own little bin which clipped on inside your bin. Yeah. And then bin men accidentally threw away a hundred of the little bins. Doesn't <laughs> 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 no. that matter? You know, uh, a huge number of coins get thrown away, coins that add up to a massive value. So I was looking at a study which was called a Statistical Analysis of Coins Lost in Circulation. And uh, it said that in 1995, but I can't see why it would have changed much, uh, the average one-cent coin in America had a 0.3 circulation rate. So I think that probably means for every one coin that you put in circulation, you get 0.3 coins back. So pretty much 70% of coins never come back in. They just, well, you know, you chuck a coin in into like a pot and you never use it again or it falls down the back of the sofa or down a well down a well happens with pennies especially yeah so they've estimated that three billion dollars worth of pennies go missing every year every year every year if you could get all those pennies but you can't you can't and i think it ceases to be legal tender after you pay 20 p's worth of um copper What? Seriously? Something like that. It's 20-something P, I think. So if you want to pay for something um, and you want to pay just in pennies, 
They can still accept it if they want to, but they don't legally have to accept it anything over. I think it's 20 people. Okay. It might be more. That is fascinating. There are those machines now, though, in the supermarkets where you can put them in. Yeah, You'd probably you, be there for about... If you had three billion. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I did. They have those in Australia as well. And when I moved there temporarily and I was unemployed, I had no money. But uh, my boyfriend had a lot of change lying around the house. So I went and collected it all up. Collected or stole? <laughs> <laughs> you went over at night when he was asleep and, yeah, and collected it. But yeah, I remember just... <laughs> feeling like such a weird person walking up to the bank with this enormous suitcase full of coins. It was something like $400 worth of coins. It was great. It got me through the next year. Yeah, he's ridiculous. Uh, He holds it. If he hoards it, it means he was collecting it, which means you stole it. (laughs) Look, he never noticed. Did he also collect his television as well? (laughs) (laughs) One American bloke, he he walked around the town he lived in and he would go on long walks every day and whenever he passed by a car wash, he would uh, just feel in the chain slot in the vacuum machine you know you pay a few coins yep. and you get to use a vacuum machine to hoover the inside of your car he oh he made an average of five dollars sixty per trip and over a decade he made twenty one thousand dollars wow just from that it's actually still not enough to live on is it nope <laughs> it's, it's a really nice bonus but yeah. i'm also thinking he um he could be using his skills for better use because what he's doing is he's putting his finger into a small <laughs> hole and feeling around there must be another job that he can do. I can't think so. I can't think of anything. Okay, it's time for our final fact of the show, and that is Anna Chazinski. Yeah, my fact is that restaurants in 1950s Vietnam punched holes in their soup spoons to stop people stealing them. <laughs> it's uh, amazing. Yeah. Great. It's so weird. So I read this in this uh, in an excerpt from this cookbook called The Faux Cookbook by Andrea Nguyen. And yeah, she was saying under communism in the 1950s, a lot of people were stealing cutlery from restaurants. And so restaurants decided that they would punch holes in the middle of soup spoons, which she described as making the soup a lot harder to drink. It had to be gold down extremely quickly because otherwise it dribbled all out of the spoon before it got to your mouth right but apparently it was to stop people stealing it's weird that isn't it because you would think either the hole makes it completely useless that you can't Mm -hmm. drink out of it or it's still okay in which case you can use it in the restaurant but you can also still use it at home exactly by the end of your meal you've mastered the use of a holy spoon and you bring that home yeah Yeah. well they actually did it again I found one other newspaper article citing it being done in 1993 in Russia in the city of Cheboksary and it did conclude that this anti-theft device did not work Um, Mm. so this was saying that uh, the anti-theft idea in this place was to put holes in the spoons and then diners at the cafe were instructed to ball up pieces of bread that came with their meal in order to plug up the hole in the spoon that's a great idea (laughs) it's amazing how much stuff gets stolen from restaurants I didn't realise this Jamie Oliver said he lost 30,000 napkins Mm. oh I don't know whether it was a month or a year now oh yeah but it was some vast number his napkins have got like branded Jamie Oliver on them or something don't they it says Jamie Oliver on them I think Oh. Have we done the? Have we mentioned the virgin thing before? On uh, virgin, <laughs> he's got children. Dan. I, don't think, I don't think we can make this out. He's a virgin. <laughs> no, um, uh, Virgin Airlines had a similar problem years ago. They had these little plain salt and pepper shakers, and people kept stealing them because they just looked so cool. Um, and so they thought rather than combating it by 
stopping production of it or trying to work out how to stop people from stealing it, they ended up just having a little embossed thing at the bottom saying pinched from Virgin Airways. And it became a huge marketing tool. Everyone loved the idea. So they were encouraging yeah. people to steal them. Yes. Um, this is like Oaxaca had an amnesty on stolen spoons recently, actually, because I think Oaxaca spoons are also quite distinct. I think they're big yeah. and round and plastic. They're like plastic, aren't they? Yes, and colourful. Yeah. So they had an amnesty where they said, if you return stolen spoons, then we'll give you free food. And there were posters up which said, sure, they're irresistibly bright, and some say ergonomically perfect. True, there's no finer ladle for your last mouthful. But please, please, can we have them back? Um, the state parliament in Russia, the Duma, they had a lot of problems with people stealing cutlery. In they? 2004, at least, they did. Um, they were losing 30 to 40 spoons uh, and 15 forks a week. So they're Whoa. losing that much per week. Uh, and um, there was a guy, an MP called Sergei Glotov, uh, and he thought that basically because they didn't have a gift shop, Whenever anyone came, they just <laughs> thought, oh, well, I'm going to have to take something, so I'm going to take some cutlery instead. Ah. Right. When I went to Russia, lozhka, which is spoon, is one of the few words that I learned, and people kept, uh, over the course of the week, uh, nicking me spoons from around the place. Because you just kept saying lozhka, lozhka. Yeah, I kept just... on saying lozhka, and then people found it very amusing, and they gave me, I, t- I came back with about half a dozen spoons. Ah. Wow. Lozhki meaning spoons. Right. Uh, is also a um, musical instrument, I think. The spoons, yeah. Yeah, it's like the spoons, <laughs> but they're like decorated and they're big. Cool. And I have some at home. Nice. Bozhki. You should have gone around Russia saying the words, learn the words for slightly more valuable, exciting yeah, things. Yeah, I like, should have. saying diamond, diamond. I know. Dengue. <laughs> should have learned that. Um, yeah, so disappearing spoons seems to be a major thing to the extent that the British Medical Journal in 2005 published a report called The Case of the Disappearing Teaspoons, Longitudinal Cohort Study of the Displacement of Teaspoons in an Australian Research Institute. And it was a study where they investigated the uh, lifespan of a teaspoon and how soon it would be stolen. And they worked out that the half-life of teaspoons was 81 days. Um, If you wanted to have an institute-wide population of 70 teaspoons in this research institute, you would need to buy 250 teaspoons in one year. And their conclusion was that the loss of workplace teaspoons is rapid, showing that their availability, and hence office culture in general, is constantly threatened. We suggest that the development of effective control measures against the loss of teaspoons should be a priority on national research agendas. Wow. <laughs> it's Fox in this office, isn't it? Yeah, it is. We oh, need to God. get them to do another study yeah, on this office. Remember when you guys accused me of throwing away all our cutlery? I still think you might have accidentally thrown them away. I didn't do That's it. And As I if think they were an archaeological find. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm an Australian, so this is matching up with this report that yeah. you just read. It is very odd, though. So we, you know, like little things like coasters. The prime example is biros. Mm-hmm. Like, biros just go. Douglas Adams has this whole riff about, you know, they squirrel themselves away through space-time to their own dimension. But it is bizarre. I frequently put three biros in my bag, and I end the day, and I've got none. Yeah. Where are they? They're in my bag. So. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I was collecting them. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's basically anything that's low value, right? So if yeah. it's low value, you don't really care about it, so it just goes missing. Whereas if you had a really nice pen, yeah. then you probably would never lose it. Yeah. Um, I was looking into other kinds of spoons that mm-hmm. we've had throughout the years. Um, my favorite spoon so far, one I've not heard of, ear spoons. Have you heard of ear spoons? Yeah. That's so cool. Historical it's, artifact. It's for getting wax out of your ears. Yeah, right? pre the Q-tip. Uh, it was you'd have a spoon with a little <laughs> with a long handle, and you'd shove it down your ear, and you'd try and dislodge Ugh, the wax inside, gross. and come out with a nice spoonful I of think wax. I have one. 
Do you? I think so. Mm. Well, you haven't been using it, it enough, went, James, it, by the looks of it. <laughs> Sorry? <laughs> it went in a few years ago. Uh, in the E-series of QI, um, we found out about these things. Oh, and okay. you can buy them readily online. And I think, haven't seen it for years, so maybe I haven't got it still, but I thought I bought one with a light on it. So you can kind of go into the ears and kind Wait, of look you at... No, I see your own. I, I do on. see the problem with that. <laughs> but uh, I think it's for other people if you're kind of digging wax if the light, other if, if the light comes out of your eyes, you know there's no wax in your ear. <laughs> <laughs> no, and also I remember reading that, and I don't know if this is kind of a bit of a funny pages thing, but apparently uh, earwax picking of your loved one was kind of a bit of a fetish in Japan for a while. No. Yeah, it does. It feels like just a made-up thing, but I remember reading articles about it. So mm. um, Here's the thing about spoons. Yeah. Uh, in 1909, the Huddersfield Examiner reported that there had been a competitive spoon-cleaning competition. <laughs> the... Pretty cool. That is mm. such a good way to get everyone to do the town's washing up. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what the first ever spoons were? Do you know what they were made from? Oh, wood. They oh. were made of shells tied onto sticks. Who <laughs> <laughs> says who? Says my researchers. Okay. <laughs> okay. The Latin word for spoon is cochleare, and that okay, comes from yeah, the word for sh- that. that comes from the word for shell. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So I think that's the thinking. Yeah, but you're sense. not going to find any sticks and and shells not tied together. Dan's right? throw them all the way with the, with the office forks. <laughs> But you're not going to find that in an archaeological way. So I can see the language thing. But even then, it could be the shape of it just reminds you of a shell. Possibly, possibly. Might, not sure. Might you find it in a in a cave? With just not tied <laughs> together, but like just sitting next to each other. Almost yeah, but like. you don't know. Just, I mean, you're always going to find sticks and shells next to each other. When I go to the beach and I see a bit of driftwood in their shell, I don't think, oh, there's an ancient cutlery set. <laughs> You've got to use your imagination in this line of work, James. <laughs> So, do you know one of the oldest spoons that exists in this country is... Yes, it's my, uh, it's my <laughs> sti- sticky shell. <laughs> Sorry. There's, a- there's Andy's I, shell, and yeah. then, hot on the heels of that, um, this is the only piece of medieval regalia we have. So, stuff from uh, things that were used in medieval royal ceremonies. And it's the coronation spoon. So, the most sacred part of the Queen's coronation is when she gets anointed which is when the Archbishop of Canterbury in private puts uh, holy oil on her, I think it's her breasts, her hands and her head. Yeah. And um, she uses this, he uses this coronation spoon and it's from the 12th century. Wow. Which I just think that's incredible. It's almost a thousand year old spoon. And the, the breasts it's seen. <laughs> in China, restaurants are pining a bring-your-own-cutlery movement because huge amounts of cutlery get wasted. So it's weird that we pick up plastic cutlery in a lot of the cafes that you go to, for instance, in London. Mm. And um, it was worked out that they were wasting something like, it was something ridiculous, like 80 billion pairs of chopsticks a year in China. And so in Beijing, there's a bring-your-own-cutlery movement where a whole bunch of restaurants now, hundreds of restaurants across the city, don't serve cutlery. And if you forget to bring your own cutlery, then you're buggered, I guess. Well, that's a really good Idea. It's a really good idea. Yeah. yeah. And they well, used to do it in medieval times. Everyone would have to bring their own knife, yeah, wouldn't they? You just have a knife on your belt, and that was the knife really? you used that's, for meals. That's exactly what we wanted London people walking around with knives. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's it. That's all of our facts. Thank you so much for listening. If you would like to get in contact with any of us about the things that we've said over the course of this podcast, we can be found on our Twitter accounts. I'm on at Schreiberland. 
Andy at Andrew Hunter M. James at Eggshaped. And Chazinski. You can email podcast at qi.com. Yep, or you can go to at QI Podcast. That's our group Twitter account. Or you can go to no such thing as a fish.com where we have all of our previous episodes. We'll be back again next week with another episode. Goodbye. Bye.